0: Morning. Hopefully everybody got uh, the need to know bulletin on the way in. Uh, We have a lot of things that are going on in the life of the church, especially as we prepare for Easter. So if you didn't get that, make sure you grab it on the way out. Uh, My name is Pastor Daniel. I'm one of the executive pastors here at Resurrection Church. And uh, Easter's a big deal for the church. I don't know if you know that, but for us, it's kind of the Super Bowl. And so we're, we're prepping pretty hard for it. Um, one of the major reasons is that's such a big deal in the context of the local church is that we know statistically that we have the highest probability of getting someone to say yes to an invite to come to church on Easter. Um, so we get to use those really, really weird traditions of Christendom to our advantage and get people to come show up even though they're probably just doing it to placate grandma. That's Okay. Uh, We'll put the butts in the pews and preach the paint off the gospel and let God do work. Amen? Amen. All right. So uh, you want to take a look at this because there's a bunch of stuff we're going to be doing as a lead up to Easter. Uh, from a workday on campus in order to get ready, to a picnic with you guys so that we can hang out before Easter uh, rolls around when it gets crazy, to all sorts of fun stuff we're doing uh, on Easter and after Easter to, to try and engage individuals who may come and, and begin to get connected. And we want to make sure that we have a mechanism to get them engaged into the context of the local body, to help them use their spiritual gifts, to help them find Christian community, to help them engage into this life pursuing Jesus with one another. Amen? All right, we're all on the same page. At least four of you that said amen. Okay, so. Starting a new series today, and uh, we're going to be in the Gospel of Luke for six weeks, including Easter Sunday, and then we'll jump back into the book of Ephesians. Um, I've been waiting for the book of Ephesians chapter four for eight months, so I'm super excited about this, and um, we are doing a lot of work around uh, the staff right now. So the staff has this big, we have this big spreadsheet and it has all of these deliverables, all these due dates on it of all this stuff that we're trying to get done in time for Easter in every department. It sounds very professional. It's probably not, but we're making it sound that way. And uh, we're, we're racing really hard. we got our, we got our foot on the gas right now. And one of the things that we've... Really been working through prayerfully over about the last two, maybe three months, is you know you you want to understand the season and pace of your church in order to lead well. In fact, uh, Ray Orland Jr. would say that uh, a good pastor wants to be two steps in front of his congregation. If he's only one step, he's probably not pulling and pushing and leading at the right pace. And if he's three steps ahead, he's probably a martyr. What you think on that one? <clears throat> All right. Going to be two steps ahead, and so, so in terms of the season of our church, I, you know, really prayerfully considered the last probably six ish months of our church for most of us. Painting with really broad strokes here, has been a season of I would just I would just say uh, let's call that introspection. That's a big word with a lot of syllables. Um, we've been considering if this is worth it. As a church, a lot of us have been considering like there was wounds, there was hurt, there was conflict, there was COVID. Uh, there was a fight for unity. There was a, is this really worth the struggle and the fight and the battle? Do we really love each other? Or do we just tolerate each other? Is it worth the fight. And for those of us, as we've kind of come through that season, are there hurts and hang-ups that we need to forgive people for, to, to, to heal from, to move on from? And so uh, I, I think largely we're in a season now where we have come through that season. And the most of us that are still here believe that, yes, it is worth it. Yes, I do actually love you guys, not just tolerate you guys. Amen? except, and here's the big change, the transition I think our church is beginning to move toward, and that's this. Six months of that or so has has created a lot of internal focus where we're considering kind of what's best for us and how do I feel about this and how do I feel about that and how do I feel about you? And we're now at a point where we really as a church body largely have to move our gaze out beyond the walls of our church and our own household and our own personal situation and how I feel about things And we begin to realize that we live in the midst of a dark, broken, dysfunctional culture. Where most of the people that are around us are isolated, that are lost, they have no hope, and they continue to spin their wheels in the cares of this world. And you and I hold in our hearts, because of Christ, the key to solving that dysfunction, which is Christ. And so it's our job to move from where we have been to a culture of invitation in order to reach out and connect with people that are far from God and invite them to hear the gospel. So not only is this series called The Good News, but internally we've been working on this as a staff, and so we just kind of got to the point where we felt like uh, we probably weren't doing a good enough job as a staff inviting people to church. And so we were in staff meeting, and we decided what we'd do is we would commit, there's about 18 of us in there, we would commit to a certain number of church invites between now and Easter, so then we're debating, well, how many is that going to be? I mean, I'm going to put me on the hook for this? And so, <clears throat> yes, I am. And then I'm going to tell it to the whole church on a Sunday morning. <laughs> Don't give them a mic. So I got a big, we got a big jar. Pastor Mark got a big jar of like marbles and then a big empty jar. And we're like, how many marbles are we putting in this by Easter? 540. i Five, That really scared. Some introverts in our office. <clears throat> uh, where's my buddy, Richard? Richard probably done that this week. Um, He's the evangelist. He's always got people with him. I was like, I'll just just have him do my invites for me. Does that work? No, it does not. (laughs) Substitutionary atonement was Jesus. Not the evangelist you know in your household. Okay, so 540. And so uh, I'm like, okay, we got to start doing And so like Friday I go, or Thursday I go and look, and there's only seven marbles in the jar. And I have three of them and Karen put three of them in. I'm like, y'all are slacking. These are rookie numbers. We've got to get these numbers up. So we, we have we have invite cards coming for you guys that have an invite to Easter, and then the other side, they have an invite to the series after Easter so that you can make it a little bit easier to connect with people and invite them in into church to come and to see, um, which was Jesus' invite to the disciples, right? Just come and see. Come and see. Come and hear that the Lord is good. So I'm at uh, my lunch place on Thursday or Friday, and I'm... Uh, I took one of the little invite cards, the old ones that we had, and I go to this lunch place all the time. I've been there for like four years. They know me by now. In fact, they just bring my order. I don't even order anymore. That's kind of scary. And so afterwards, I'm like, hey, you know, and I invite my server, who all these servers I know really well, to church. And I'm not joking. The server looks at me and goes, it's about time. <laughs> She's like, you've been coming here for years. And I was like, wow. Okay. All right. So take my embarrassing story. Go out to the world, invite some people. Uh, hopefully they don't all tell you it's about time. Um, we're probably slacking. All right. Enough of that. Moving on. <laughs> Started in Luke chapter 4 today, we're gonna go through the gospel of Luke, and look at stories about Jesus. We're gonna end at Easter on the hope of the world, which is the resurrection. But we're gonna start in a story that I have read plenty of times. I've never heard it preached, I've never studied it before, and honestly, I wasn't really excited to preach it because it doesn't seem very interesting. It's the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. And part of the reason that I think uh, it's never seemed very interesting is the temptations don't seem very good. Like, who's falling for this, Satan? Like, hey, throw yourself off the temple. Nobody wants to do that, except you weirdos that go to the amusement parks. Um, Nobody's, nobody's tempted to throw themselves off the temple to see if the angels will catch them. I, I just It's weird stuff that doesn't really seem to apply to you and I. And so uh, I began to really study it and read through it and study it. And I just come to a couple realizations. And my prayer for us today is that these same things happen to you. As the Spirit was working in me, one, I think there's just some phenomenal things that we're going to learn about Jesus in this story. And secondly, there are layers to this. We're going to look at a bigger story in this, an illustration that really is part of the entire arc of the Bible that is inside this story. And they're very illuminating um, in fact, I'm going to give you the points first, and then we'll circle back at the end. The, the big points, and that's this. Um, and Tim Keller would point this out in a sermon that he did on the temptation of Christ a couple of years ago. But the, the biggest takeaway in this entire story is that this life is a fight, this life is a battle. And we need to understand in order to live the Christian life effectively and pursue Jesus effectively and and enter into real relationship with God day after day, we need to do three things with this fight, this battle. Number one, we need to identify when the battle occurs. We need to identify when the battle occurs. Secondly, we need to identify where is the front? Like where's the attack coming from? So that we're actually turned the right way to face it. And third, we need to identify and understand and put our real confidence in where is or what is the hope to win the battle? What is the hope? When the battle occurs, where is the front and what is the hope? Now... We're going to come back to that at the end because I just want to walk through what's going on. Jesus has spent 30 years, roughly, he's about 30 years old, and he's not entered into public ministry yet. So so in that 30 years, he's lived in poverty, he's basically been a carpenter, Uh, and then in Luke chapter 3, he has a public baptism. So he's baptized in the Jordan River, God speaks to those who were there as witness and says, this is my son, identifying him as the son of God, and the Holy Spirit descends on him. So he now has the Holy Spirit, that's just happened. And then we get to Luke chapter four, verse one, and this happens. Here we go. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, that's the river, and was led by the spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, Command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live, by bread alone all right we see in the, this passage and the uh, ones that we 're going to cover three types of temptation that we're going to cover in here starting uh, at the beginning we see a personal temptation and then we're going to see a power temptation and then we're going to see a pride temptation so those are the three temptations that we're going to see Satan use explicitly in this passage but I want to start with just this idea of temptation in general because we use the word temptation all the time. Right? So, like every time there's like really good maple bars from Smith's, it's like temptation, right? But that's not always the temptation. That's not what we mean by temptation. Temptation biblically has a different meaning. I want to be very explicit about that because we, we use the word broadly. Temptation is this idea of a pull toward sin. Now, uh, what is sin? Sin is outside God's character, it's something that would be disobedient to God, it's outside of his will and plan. And temptation is a pull toward that. And understand that you and I were born with a sinful nature when sin entered the world in the Garden of Eden uh, and entered into Adam and Eve. Every descendant of Adam and Eve now, every descendant of Adam has a sin nature until we get to Jesus. Jesus is born of the Virgin Mary. Joseph is not actually his dad. His, and because of that, he, he does not have a sinful nature. He's not born into sin, and yet he's still tempted. So sin, I mean temptation, uh, actually exists even outside the presence of sin in our life. Adam and Eve don't even know what sin is until Satan comes and begins to tempt. Temptation is never from God. Temptation is never from God. We know that in James, that none of us should say that God tempts us. God doesn't tempt. That's not what he does because he can't tempt. And here's why God can't tempt. Temptation is never from God because all temptation is actually towards something that's outside of God. In fact, the definition of it, it wouldn't be temptation if it wasn't attempting to pull us to something that was outside of God. So God can't tempt because he can't pull you out of his own will and his own character. So to use the word temptation biblically is to actually assert that there is a pull to something outside the will of God, away from God, independent of God. All temptation, according to uh, Chuck Swindoll, has four phases. I want to cover these four phases, and we'll see them in here too, and you'll recognize some of these in your own life. The first phase of a temptation is this, the appeal, the appeal. Something forbidden, right? Outside God, something forbidden promises fulfillment apart from God. Something forbidden promises fulfillment apart from God. Think about this, okay? Let's go all the way back to the garden. Adam and Eve are given total reign over the garden except for what? One tree. You get everything, but this one tree don't eat the fruit off this one tree. I mean, at some point, you guys have all thought the same thing like, man, y'all really messed it up for us. Like, when I see you in heaven, it's going to be like, thanks, dude. One tree. And, and, and what, is the, what is the message from Satan about this? If you ate of that fruit, you could get this apart from God, right? If you would just eat of that fruit, then you could be like God and you wouldn't need God. So so the very temptation of the fruit is this idea that there's fulfillment outside the will of God. That's how sin enters the world. Think about it in our own lives where temptation comes. Temptation takes something that could be relatively good and suddenly it becomes a sin. Like sex is a thing that God created. It's a good thing. So how come we see so much sin around sex? Money's not a bad thing. How, much, how come we see so much sin around money? Relationships are not bad things. They're good things. How come there are so many dysfunctional, broken, sinful relationships? Like how does something good turn bad? Because I think something good, and I promise you that you can get fulfillment from this good thing apart from God, that you don't need him. And in the moment that good thing offers you fulfillment in absence independent of God it becomes very simple and that is the temptation to take the things the very things of the creator and want them more than the creator himself it's temptation they lead away from God in fact if we were measuring if we were unsure if this thing in my life is temptation towards sin because i'm not sure if it's explicitly wrong or not because let's be honest most of the things for the believer, for, for you that have put your faith in Jesus Christ, most of the things that will slow down your pursuit of God and your relationship with God we begin to break things when it comes to the relationship with God are morally neutral things. They're not bad things. They're not awful things. They're actually kind of good things. You just begin to prioritize them wrong, and next thing you know, they become idolatry in your life because they rob you of your affection from God, because they slow down your pursuit of God, because they begin to trick you, whether it's from Satan or from your own sinful nature or from a world that is broken telling you otherwise, they begin to tell you that there is fulfillment in those things apart from God. And next thing you know, a very good relationship becomes a very broken relationship. A very good thing becomes a very bad thing. How many How many people do we know that... The relationship could have been good, but the the way they approached the relationship, the way they felt about the relationship, it became dysfunctional almost right off the bat because they thought they could find identity and fulfillment in the relationship instead of in God. And we do this with the smallest of things. How many families do I know that their Christian life has just been absolutely devastated because they put a kid in Little League or they thought little Susie was going to be the next volleyball star and next thing you know, they're in a traveling league and you don't see them for two years and they're wondering why life's a mess. And you're like, bro, you've, I, I mean, you have an idol of your kid being a volleyball star. What did you think was gonna happen? You thought worshiping that was gonna go well? Good things that turn into devastating things because we think we can find fulfillment in them apart from God. It's the appeal. The next phase is the struggle. So, so we feel that every one of us has felt the appeal. Jesus, in this story... Sees the appeal. And then we have the struggle. And this is the struggle. There's a tension that begins to build between the appeal of the sin and the belief that God is actually good. That's That's the struggle. Now you think the struggle is between doing it and not doing it. That is not the struggle. The struggle is this. In fact, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, famous pastor from Germany actually left during um, the world war II and then went back into Germany and ended up being a spy against the Nazis because he didn't want to ever leave his sheep. He didn't want to leave the church and run from the war. And he went back and ended up dying a martyr. Technically he was executed for trying to kill Hitler, but still, you know what I'm saying? His books are phenomenal, right? This guy Bonhoeffer is just amazing. Bonhoeffer says this, he says all sin is a statement of disbelief in God. All sin is there's a struggle between how I feel or what I'm being told would lead to fulfillment, and what God says. And when I sin, I'm saying God's wrong. God's not faithful. I better choose my plan. I know what I want better than God does. That's what we're saying. We can we can put it in nice terms. We can put it in Christianese terms. Man, I've been slipping up a little bit, backsliding. You've heard those. You know what I mean, though? What I mean is when we're faced with the struggle, we know what the struggle is. God's faithful or I'm right. And we love to be right. Yeah? Oh, we love to be right. I mean, how many fools have been arguing on the Internet because they just got to be right? It's 17 comments deep, and you're like, you're all idiots. The appeal, the struggle, the response. A decision is made to either disobey God or to trust God. And listen, and we're going we're gonna to see this in here. The bulk of our life are very small, almost like look like innocent, innocuous sort of decisions. They're not big decisions. Nobody ever wakes up one day and says, I'm going to cheat on my wife. How does it start? Small decisions. Right up here. Every affair starts up here before it starts down here. Every affair starts with a wandering eye and some thoughts that maybe fulfillment could be found in something other than the way God says fulfillment is found in relationships. Up here. And then there's a number of small decision after small decision after small decision that creates a pattern in your life of the same types of decisions that ultimately leads to devastation because all sin leads to devastation because all sin This is a statement of disbelief in God, the response. And lastly, the aftermath, the consequences of sin breed despair. The fruit of obedience multiplies blessing. The consequences of sin breed despair. The fruit of obedience multiplies blessing. Now, here's the thing about temptation. Temptation is happening all the time, all around us, and and we just tend to minimize the impact of that temptation, because God has a plan and a character and a set of instructions for us and a spirit he puts in us, and we continually fight against his work. So uh, over the course of the week, as I was doing the studying on this subject particularly, I've been really, really struggling with um, anxiety. And one of the reasons I'm struggling so much with stress and anxiety is um, anytime my circumstances begin to look like they're outside of my control, I have a tendency to to have uh, anxiety, right? Because I like to control my circumstances because I'm kind of a control freak. None of you are like that. I know it's me. It's my own personal confession. Don't worry. There's no parallels for you. And so uh, finances in our company have been really, really bad. And like, you know, you, when you look at something, it's illogical and you don't know how God's going to provide, but then you look at God's track history of providential work in your life for like, I don't know, 20, 30, whole life, whatever. And, and you go, well, he's a really faithful God. I should probably just trust him. But then there's just something in you that wants to stress and have anxiety over it. And so I'm fighting back and forth and back and forth. And, and I'm trying not, you know, I, I should at this point know better. And so then you, you start to feel ashamed that you don't know better, especially if you're a pastor. And then I'm sitting there brushing my teeth and I, hear God ask me audibly ask me in my ear hey uh who told you to freak out and I you know I just stopped like I had my toothbrush in my mouth so it was really awkward and I was like uh what and he's like yeah who told you to be anxious and I was like "Mm, feels like it's a trick question and then he said who taught you that not him You see that's what Satan does is, is Satan wants to get in in small decisions in little ways and begin to create doubt that God's plan is not good for you and that you should begin to reevaluate that and that's what starts here is a small thing turn a stone into bread that's a eat some bread like that's not a big deal Think about what happens here. Jesus has been baptized, filled with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit leads him out in the desert. Jesus didn't choose to go to the desert. This wasn't a camping trip. The Spirit leads him out to fast in the wilderness for 40 days and be tempted. He is being obedient to God in this process. And likely Satan is tempting him the whole time. He says, for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. That's ongoing for 40 days. And then the fast has ended Right, so so eating bread is not in disobedience to like the fast that God had him. It says when the fast was over, he was hungry. Like what, what's wrong with eating bread? Okay, let's be honest. Just so we can clear this up. How many of us today in this room have at some point in our lives eaten bread? Okay. Really common. It's not sinful. Why, why is this a temptation? It doesn't even make sense. Why would this be a temptation? Why? It, it, you're just eating some bread. You're, of course you're hungry. Dude, I missed two meals. I'm hungry. He hasn't eaten in 40 days. There's nothing wrong with him eating. So what's the problem here? Well, what's, what's Satan really telling him to do? What, he, what Satan's telling him to do is use your power to make some bread. And, and look, Jesus, this is the same guy that's going to turn water into wine, that he's going to take fish and loaves and feed 5,000. Like he clearly has... The ability to do this in the gospels, uh, we see 38 unique, explicit miracles that Jesus does from raising people from the dead to converting water to wine to all of these other ones. And there are at least four times where it says Jesus heals many, meaning we don't even know how many miracles. So, So there are just dozens, maybe hundreds of miracles that Jesus will do in a three year period before the cross. So why is this a big deal? Here's why. Because not one time in any of those accounts did Jesus ever use his power for himself. Not once. Because that's not what it is for. Jesus didn't come to satiate himself. Jesus came to pour himself out. Jesus has lived in poverty for 30 years. You think he couldn't have used his power to, like, put some money in the wallet? Jesus is sleeping on the floor most of the time. You think at some point that didn't feel a little uncomfortable for his back? Some of y'all got to have, like, a surda or it doesn't even work. You couldn't have just levitated himself five inches off the ground? Slept on an air mattress? (laughs) Could have. Why didn't he? That's not why he was here. He wasn't here to glorify himself. He wasn't here for his own comfort. He wasn't here for looking out for number one. That doesn't sound familiar, right? He didn't just need to follow his heart, do what's right. He was here to glorify the Father, and he was here for us. And note the jab that Satan uses, right? If you're the son of God, if you know, if you're the Satan knows he's the son of God. All the demons knew he was the son of God. In fact, he's just been baptized. God's just spoken aloud, and His the Holy Spirit has descended upon him. Satan knows exactly who is is. Why was it? If you're the son of God, because he's implying. I mean, if you're really the son of God, then God wouldn't withhold something good from you, would He? I mean, so he wants you to eat. Sound familiar? I mean. If God really wanted to tell you the truth, then he would let you eat that one fruit in the middle of the garden because, but he knows, he's just holding back. If you ate that, then you'd be like him and you'd know the difference between good and evil. So he's lying to you. What is, what is Satan really telling him? He's telling him, you can't trust God. His plan's not the best. Oh man, he's holding back. And to be honest, one of the reasons that this story is so... Uh, unattractive when I read it the first time is that Jesus response is really weird, right? Jesus actually quotes a verse. You'll see it in quotations in your Bible probably. um, and he says man doesn't live by bread alone. And and so you're like, what? Like that's such a weird Jesus response, right? Like dude, you're hungry. Eat some food. Like man doesn't eat by like, that doesn't make any sense. Like when I'm hungry, that's not what I say. I say, yes, please. Can I have a second helping? Jesus is referring and and quoting Deuteronomy chapter eight. And he's actually, I'm going to read you the whole passage in context. He's actually pointing back to a point where God used difficult circumstances in order to discipline and shape the people of Israel to create a dependence from them on him. Listen to this context of what Jesus actually is quoting because they only get a little brief bit of it. It says, and he humbled, God humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you and your foot did not swell. These 40 years in the wilderness, Jesus spent how many days, 40 days in the wilderness. You're seeing the parallels here. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord God disciplines you. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is not saying disciplines because Jesus did something wrong. Jesus is saying God uses circumstances in your life to breed a dependency on God so that you will know God is trustworthy and you will desire him even more. And the parallel of 40 days in the wilderness is exactly on purpose and intentional for the 40 years in the wilderness to look at how the people did not follow God and Jesus does follow God. And what Jesus is actually telling Satan is not that he's not hungry, he is. It's not that he shouldn't eat, he will. No, he's saying that God has a track history of goodness and faithfulness and desires a dependence of us into, like, God wants us to desire him so urgently that it would shadow and, and, and everything else would fade, that your hunger, that your physical desires, that your pain, that your circumstances, that all of those would pale in comparison to how much you desired God. That's what Jesus is quoting. He's saying, you think this hunger is a big deal? You think this hunger would cause me to doubt the track history of God? Do you, did you not realize what God did with the Israelites? How for 40 years he provided for them faithfully in order to discipline them and teach them what it looks like to desire him. And Satan is saying the opposite. He's saying God's holding back. God's plan's not right. Your physical desires, your feelings should win out over God's track history. How about you? What wins in your life? Physical desire, personal desire, obedience to God, desire for his presence, desperation for his relationship. You you see, for many people, God is a means to an end. Like when circumstances are really bad, then I need God so the circumstances will get better, right? Like how many people, how many atheists are converted to believers when the plane is going down? All of them. Why? Well, because God is a means to an end. God is my genie in the bottle. I rub the lamp and then he does what I want him to do. I need God so that things will get better. That's what we tell ourselves. In fact, that's the religious formula. It, that based on my behavior, if, I'll, if I can you know, do the things that God told me I, I, I need to do, if I can, I can work out the morality of this, then God's going to owe me and things are going to get better. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 it's the opposite. You see, circumstances... Are a means to an end. Circumstances are here and are used to train us and lead us to desperation in God. It's not God leading us to good circumstances. And yet, even my hunger for bread can be used as a way to birth a desire for relationship and urgency for God. Verse 5 And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you, I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. So we had a personal temptation. This is the power temptation. Satan is offering Jesus a shortcut. Prophetically, we know from the Old Testament that the Messiah, that Jesus, the son of God, would rule all the kingdoms of the world. That was already promised by God, which means it's as good as done. And Jesus knows that, Satan knows that. And what Satan is offering is the same reward without having to follow God's plan. Hey, you've already spent three decades in poverty and you haven't made any progress. So maybe God's plan's not the right plan. So let me just offer you everything. Satan is offering Jesus glory without Gethsemane. Let me give you the reward without following the plan. Let me ask you this where have you started looking around at your life and at your circumstances and wondering if things are really going well following God's plan and you beginning to consider your options? Considering whether or not God's really faithful, whether he's actually trustworthy or if you need to take things into your own hands. Now, Jesus doesn't just know scripture. He knows scripture contextually. So he's not just memorized scripture. He, he, when he answers Satan, he's giving him contextually the actual answer applied by scripture. And he's, and, no, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And so Satan, after two attempts here now, is gonna change tactics. Satan's gonna use scripture to tempt Jesus. Verse nine, and he took him to Jerusalem and he set him on the pinnacle of the temple and he said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here for it is written. Now he's gonna quote a psalm. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time and Jesus returned in, power to, uh, uh, in the power of the spirit to Galilee and a report about him went through all the surrounding country and he taught in their synagogues being glorified by all. So a couple things to note in this final temptation. The first is this, the devil knows scripture. In fact, the, nev- the devil knows scripture better than you do. He's memorized it. A.W. Tozer would say, the devil is a better theologian than any of us and is a devil Still. It's not enough to read it. It's not enough to memorize it. It's not enough to know it. It has to change you. You don't get to just read scripture and leave unchanged. Every time we open the holy word of God, it is a two-edged sword that pierces at, to the division. I mean, like it is, it is truth and it is active and it is real and it is alive and it better change you. And if you're opening it and then closing it and nothing's changed, then it's not really impacting you because the devil knows scripture better than you do, and it ain't changing him. Now, just a quick side note, Satan changed the verse. He left out some important words. Not that that ever happens in church. The words he left out were in all your ways. So the actual promise from God is actually... In God's plan, Satan left that part out because he wants Jesus to choose something other than God's plan. But listen, this is why understanding your scripture, studying scripture, memorizing scripture, letting it get in and change you. You want to find places in the Bible where you disagree. Those are great things to read. Because we, every time you read the Bible and you disagree and it hurts your feelings or it, you're like, I don't think that way. Excellent, now we have a decision. Are you right or is God right? Who's got to change? God or you? Who? Me, me, me. And I want to find those places because where I have to change means there's work for the Spirit to do. Why would this tempt Jesus? Why would this show of power, why would jumping off a building and having an angels catch him even be tempting? Well, it would certainly shortcut the ministry. He wouldn't nearly need to spend nearly as much time being abused by others, hated by others, if he displayed his power by floating down from the top of the temple. Jesus answered him, and it said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, that's accurate, that's contextual. Some theologians believe he's actually answering Satan directly more like this. He could almost be saying, Satan, you do not test me, your God. Because the temptations end after that. All right, just a couple applications, just very direct applications, and then I want to look at this overarching story, and that's this. Um, Number one, when you are weak, when you are weak, expect a major assault. When you're weak, when you're hurting, when you're low, when you're hungry, expect a major assault. Number two, when you resist temptation, be ready for a different approach. The devil is wily. Wily. The devil is wily. Now, uh, big takeaway, temptation is never from God because all temptation is towards something outside of God. Temptation has four phases, the appeal, the struggle, the response, and the aftermath. Now, want to get to this overarching idea about this life being a fight. And let me explain why I think that this story is so applicable to you and I in 2022 and why it matters and why it's illustrative in the text and why it's included and why we should pay attention to it and not overlook it. There is uh, a misconception in all of humanity, but particularly in sort of the secular culture. Uh, And you and I share this because we were born into a sin nature, and we we share this because we live in a modern world. And that's this idea that life is supposed to be, when everything's working properly, is supposed to be smooth. Okay? Okay? So, so maybe it's not today, but that's because of like external forces or something, or maybe I've got some bad habits, but if I could just, you know, get over those couple things, and if I could just get over a couple of these bad habits, and if I could just solve a couple of these things, then life should be smooth, normal, normal life. Not the one-off, you know, okay, there's some stuff here and there, but it should be smooth. And if it's not kind of good, kind of easy, kind of smooth, then someone or something is to blame, Right? And, and, and this idea, this misconception creates the wrong perspective and the wrong expectations. And here, here's why this is important, okay? Never in the history of the earth has any people next to the American people got this wrong more than us right now in 2022. Like no one has ever been, had a more distorted view that life is supposed to be easy than right now in our culture. I mean, we are awful about this. And so every time something's not going right, we have to find someone to blame. Sometimes it's us, sometimes we blame ourselves, but like we're just distraught that life's not easy and we're caught up in why these circumstances are bad. That's not what the Bible says. It says in this life, you will have trouble. It's not meant to be easy. We don't live in the Garden of Eden. We're living our worst life. Our best life is to come. It's going to be a fight. Listen, it's not based on even you. Where we get this wrong is we think it's somehow performance oriented, right? So like, if I've got problems in my life and I can't find someone else to blame, it's it's probably me. So I probably messed up or I offended God somehow or I sinned and I just gotta figure out what that is and then things will get better. Except Jesus never sinned and life was really, really, really hard. Do you see how that doesn't make any sense? In fact, Jesus gets baptized publicly. God says, this is my son, puts his spirit on him, and it gets harder. Not easier. He's got to go out in the desert for 40 days starving and be tempted by the devil. Like, this is not easy. So we got to get rid of this idea that something must be wrong because life is not going the way I wanted it to go. That is poppycock. That's the strongest word I'm allowed to use from up here. Our circumstances are not linked to our morality or our performance. And listen, this isn't a new problem, we just made it into this art form, but like go all the way back to the story of Job and listen to his, his friends, right? His friends come, because Job's lost everything. He's lost his family, he's lost his riches. I mean, he's just, he's destitute, he's got boils all over his body. And his friends are like, what'd you do? Just fess up, man, just figure it out. Like whatever it is you did to offend God, you better find it. Because then life would go back to being easy again. And God's like, yeah, they're idiots. I just shortcut like 60 chapters for you. Um, (laughs) Life is a fight. Life is a fight. And this illustration of of Jesus being tempted is the perfect example of that because he lives a perfect life and life is still hard. And he lives a perfect life and life is still hard and he doesn't make his life easier even with the power he's been granted. And that's you and I too even for us, after we've been baptized and we get baptized after we put our faith in Jesus Christ and after we get the Holy Spirit, just like Jesus gets the Holy Spirit, we get the Holy Spirit, we get baptized and life doesn't suddenly get easier. Nobody better be promising you easy with Christianity because if they're promising you that, they are lying and they're a false teacher and they don't read the Bible because that's not in here. That's back to what Satan does where he takes half of a verse. So when you hear like... um, You can do all things through me. Like, read the whole chapter. He's in prison. It's not about you getting a promotion. That doesn't mean you can dunk a basketball. I can do all things through, boy, you're short. It ain't happening. Where is the attack coming from? Where's the front? We have to identify where the arrows are coming from, right? You have to understand where the attack is coming from. You better understand what's coming after you in this Christian life that's coming for your attention and your affection. Because if you don't, you're going to be turning the wrong way when the attack comes. So you got to know where it's coming from. You got to be able to identify it. The Bible talks a lot about Satan being wily, wanting to devour you, seeking you to destroy you. The attack comes from three places. God's three enemies become our three enemies when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. Those three enemies are the Satan, Satan, the world, and our flesh. Satan, the world, and our flesh. Three things that are enemy of God, they're our enemies when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. Now, we're Reformed Baptists, so that means we got two of these really right and we ignore the third. We love, as Reformed Baptists, to talk about our flesh. We love to talk about a terrible, dysfunctional culture. We get really um, insecure and a a little bit sensitive when we start talking about Satan and spiritual beings and demons and angels, and all of us are like, whoa, slow down. And yet, all three, the whole story today is about Satan. But, but the problem is that in the modern world, especially in the secular world, man, the idea of supernatural evil is something like we don't even want to talk about. I mean, you wouldn't expect anyone with more than like a third grade education to get up here a, behind a pulpit and talk about supernatural evil because of science and, and education. Like the modern world, the secular world, is basically, they will admit to the idea of evil, but not supernatural evil. You see, all evil can just be explained away with either uh uh, psychiatric or sociological explanations. So if, if we can all admit that there's evil, but what I'm going to say, you know what? Um, th- those are either psychiatric problems, right? They're psychological problems. Like oh, we can just counsel you out of that. Like with enough therapy, you won't be evil anymore. Or, it's sociological. You know, with enough education, you know, we can, if we just get our education system right, we could get rid of evil. If we just had enough training programs, enough assistance programs, enough laws, you know what we really need in this country is more laws. <laughs> then we could get rid of evil. Here's the problem it's 2022, it still hasn't worked. We're not even that much closer. One of the one of the one of the greatest stories that I heard recently was about this uh, lady named Frances Perkins. Frances Perkins was the very first female cabinet member in American history. She was a Secretary of Labor during uh, Franklin Roosevelt's term, and uh, <clears throat> this is when World War II was going on. And so she writes a memoir with a story about FDR that is just phenomenal, and. Uh, FDR is at church and there's a young pastor that uh, is talking to him and ends up recommending the uh, writings of Kirkingard. Now, if you're not familiar with Kierkegaard, um, uh, Soren Kirkingard was born like in the early 1800s and wrote a bunch of uh, books through the mid 1800s. But primarily, he, a lot of his writings are focused on uh, like a better understanding of the doctrine of sin. And so uh, Perkins recalls this story where Uh, She's trying to brief the president on something and he's not really listening. And all of a sudden he looks at her and he says, Francis, have you ever read And She's like, no. And he says, well, you should because I finally understand the Nazis. And see, what was so interesting is, um, and I don't know if you know this as a history buff, but what was going on in Nazi Germany with the Jews had actually been happening for years and no one in the world believed it. And the reason no one believed it was because they were highly educated as a nation. They were economically successful. They were smart. They were intelligent. They had a phenomenal, like just the culture was good. They they were smarter than we were. And so no one could believe that they would be doing the types of things to the Jews that the rumors were out there until he read about sin, supernatural sin, supernatural evil. And then what he tells his labor secretary as he finally understands, he finally has been able to come to terms how the stories about the Nazis could be true, that the people with all the education and all the background and all the intelligence and all the science could be doing these types of things to other human beings. Only supernatural sin explains that because they had everything going for them and yet they were still treating other humans this way. And the interesting thing about this is no one that was a Nazi one day just decided, let's go commit atrocities, right? What happened? Well, it got there by small decisions, one after another, choosing little sins that become big sins over time. It starts with harboring grudges and and, and believing that life should be better than it is. And if it isn't, wondering why it's not and having to find someone to blame. And maybe the people to blame isn't just a person. Maybe it's a people group. And maybe that people group has been really devastating our country and they're to blame. And maybe it's Jews or maybe it's homosexuals or maybe it's blacks. All three of which actually were absolutely, had atrocities committed against them in Nazi Germany. Why? Because at some point we had to realize like somebody's to blame for the problems in our country. And we have to find them and deal with them. But it started slowly. It started with a misconception of how life should work. It started with uh, with a misconception of, should it be God's plan or my plan? And it slowly built until the next thing you know, we're gassing thousands of people. And the whole point is not that the Nazis were bad, is that the Nazis are you and me. And every single one of us has that inside of us because of supernatural sin. And every one of us is faced with small decisions that at some point lead to devastating decisions, but it starts with the small things. Now, what are those small things? Well, down the line of what we see in this story, this illustration, I want you to take this away, is that there are two competing perspectives of the world. There's a a kingdom perspective and there's a satanic kingdom perspective. And what you see in all of these temptations is Satan's worldview of how this kingdom should work. And it's this, others' lives poured out for me. Now, not so much maybe so that they would be offended. I don't want to trample all the way over them, but, but, but in total, I got to look out for number one. And so it's other people. How can I leverage my resources? How can I leverage my talents? How can I leverage you for my benefit? I could turn rocks into bread. I could jump off a temple and be caught. I could, like you poured out for me. And on the other side of this line is a kingdom perspective. And what Jesus says is, no, it's me poured out for you. It's my life poured out for you. I don't use these powers for my own benefit. I use them for the glory of the Father. I'm not here for my plan. I'm here for his plan. I was led to the wilderness by the Spirit because God is good. And at the point of the Garden of Gethsemane, at the point of of the, the most anxiety and the most strenuous work that Jesus had in faith in the Father's plan, he literally is telling the Father, not my will but yours to be done. I don't want to go to the cross And I don't want to bear the weight of the sin of the world, but what do you want? Because my life is poured out for you. And every time we make decisions to steward our resources, to follow in obedience to God, when there's temptation and attraction of something that could be outside of God's will or that could offer fulfillment without God's presence, what we're doing, even in those small decisions, we're building a pattern of who we trust. So where is the front It's all around us. It's Satan, the world, and our flesh. And what is the hope? Here's the hope. If Jesus came to be only a good example, we're lost. We're lost. We're lost. I I chuckle at the the little bracelets that everybody used to wear that say, what would Jesus do? WWJD. Because to be honest with you, it didn't matter because none of y'all could do it anyways. I couldn't either. If Jesus was just a good example, then we're then it's hopeless. Here's why. We already knew what was right and wrong, and we were choosing wrong. My my the issue that I had as a sinner, and the issue that I have even now with the power of the Spirit is not whether or not I know right and wrong. It's my inability without Christ, without the Holy Spirit, to choose right. Paul will talk about this in Romans 7. The very thing I don't want to do, I keep doing. Oh, wretched man that I am who will save me from this life of sin. Jesus is only the hope, not simply because he was a good example, but because he was a substitute. Because when he went to the cross and paid my sin, paid my debt on the cross, what he enabled is finally he let you and I break away from the bondage of sin and then he put his spirit in us. He didn't simply pay our debt and leave us to figure it out on our own, wear a little WWJD bracelet and hope we figured it out. Let me tell you how long it would take me to make a mess of my life, five minutes, and I'm being gracious. It's probably less. No, he put his spirit in us to convict us, to transform us, to change us, and then you know who else he gave me? You guys. You guys to encourage me, to exhort me, to rebuke me, to pray for me, to love me and me for you. He gave me the body of Christ, and he gave me the Holy Spirit, so that we had a supernatural power to fight a supernatural evil, amen? Amen. Because without a supernatural power, we're not fixing a supernatural evil. So what is the hope? The hope is that we have a savior. The temptation of Jesus was not Satan trying to get Jesus to be a bad example. The temptation of Satan was Satan attempting to get Jesus to not be a substitute, to not be a savior, to not pour himself out for you and I. So there's two invitations today as we leave. First invitation is for those of you that have put your faith in Jesus Christ. You at some point in your life have declared with your mouth and believed in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord. You've put your faith in him. You would call yourself a Christian, you call yourself a believer, but there's just, in your life there have been areas where you have consistently chosen to doubt the goodness of God and the plan of God, and it started small, and then it began to snowball, and the next thing you knew you were way down a path that you didn't even want to go down, and you need a reset. You just want to press the reset button and start over. And it could be in a lot of areas. It could be in work. It could be in relationships. It could be in choices. It could be social in its nature. It could be money or work or vacation. But you've established the wrong pattern and you don't know how to get to the right pattern. And you just got to press the reset button. Here's the great thing. Jesus loves the reset button. Man, he loves the reset button. He loves sinners. Sinner come home, come home. That Jesus would describe himself as the friend of sinners. Friend. Man, he wants, he wants to bear your burden for you. So I don't know what that looks like, but I know I've needed a reset many times in my life, usually every week. And I want to invite you to press the reset button today. Our elders, pastors is going to be up here to pray for you. And if you just feel the need to come up and repent and press the reset button, talk to someone, pray to someone, or just use the altar as to come up and pray and talk to the Lord, I want to invite you to do that today. And then secondly, for those of you that have never put your faith in Jesus Christ, I want to tell you that he desires you, he loves you, he's chasing you. The reason you keep showing up here, even though it's weird, is He is on you. He is chasing you. And he's got longer legs than you do. He's going to chase you down because he loves you. I want to give you an opportunity to put your faith in Christ, to make that public, to talk to somebody about next steps, and then to ultimately be baptized. This is what we do after we make our profession of faith to Jesus public. (laughs) We get baptized. Be reconciled to God, to the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And if that's something that you you believe it's time to do and time to make public, we want you to come forward today and talk to an elder or a pastor. We'd love to talk to you about what that means. So whether you're somebody who has just been looking at your circumstances and questioning God's plan and his goodness and whether or not he's got it right and you want to hit the reset button and recommit to him today or whether you've never done that and you know he is on you, he loves you, he wants you and he is saving you. We want you to come forward and talk to us. Let us pray for you. Let me pray for us. We're going to play. Our elders are going to be up here. We want to pray for you for any prayer request you have. Father God, thank you for your son. God, for loving us so much that he would come to pour himself out throughout his entire life, God, even to the extent of the cross, to bear our sin and our iniquity, God, to bear the brunt of our debt and the penalty, and God, and to be gloriously resurrected into new life, God, for saving us, for making us a new creation in him, God. I pray for those that are fighting you, whether fighting you, God, in Their circumstances, whether fighting the obedience of your plan in their life, God, whether fighting the decision to put their faith in you and to move forward as a new creation, God. I thank you for your work. I thank you for the work you're doing through our church, God, and in our communities. God, we pray that everyone would leave here encouraged, recharged, confident in your plan in our lives, even when circumstances look dire. God, you say that the prayers of a righteous man have power. And God, we lift our prayers before you for those in our service online and in person, God, that are struggling in their circumstances and in their doubt, God. You would save them. You would reconcile them. You would allow them to reset, God, and pursue you even more passionately. In Jesus' name, amen.